my lady and I did a fast last week. And uh, so in the course of the fasting, she said uh, she got a milkshake during the day to kind of hold her over, which is not, I don't know, I don't consider it cheating, but... But I said, you're awfully brave because the people that are tending to those milkshake machines are people like my son. So, you know, good luck with that. Oh, I'm an ape man. I'm an ape, ape man. Oh, I'm an ape man. Do, 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 do. I'm a King Kong man. I'm a voodoo man. Oh, I'm an ape man. Go back. Oh, ow. I don't want to die in a nuclear war. I want to live on a shore and live like an ape man. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm your host. <laughs> um, I've been, um, I've been um, racking my brain the last few days. Just in the event that, uh, well, I thought, well, I got on this ELO kick, Electric Light Orchestra, you know, the band from the 70s, you know, uh, I turned to stone when you were gone, I turned to stone, boom, 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 turned to stone when you're coming home. I can't go on, you know. Evil woman, evil woman, evil woman. You know the classics, the timeless classics. In my opinion, in my humble opinion, they're kind of like they were like the Tame Impala of the seventies, uh, but by the slimmest kind of the. Uh, by the slimmest um, type of uh, comparison. By that, I mean, Tame Paul is basically one guy, but ELO was only two. There was uh, Jeff Lynn and um, Bev Bevan. <laughs> His name was Bev Bevan. I don't know what ever happened to old Bev Bevan, but it was just the two of them. And um, so they would compose you know, the entirety of the songs, then they would get big giant orchestra uh, backup and in-studio backup by these, in, in, you know, entire orchestras. You know, there was kind of like this blend of kind of... Uh, he's He was big on, like, uh, you know, rock and roll, like Chuck Berry style, old-school rock and roll, but kind of, a, a, but kind of combining it with... Uh, uh, you know, an aria from an opera, you know, and, uh, but God, they had so many, so many fucking songs, but I think they got mislabeled a little. I think they, they were kind of seen as like a, uh, like a, uh, disco type band, but I don't, I think that might be a misrepresentation, you know, although the whole, you know, evil woman, anybody puts that in a song, you, you're asking for comparisons, man. You're asking for that disco juju. But uh, nevertheless, um, yeah, I always had a weird affinity for them. Like I would, I, I remember, I distinctly remember hearing them when I was like six years old, sitting in the backseat of my mom's Chevy Nova, her brown Chevy Nova. You know, so that would have been about 77. So, yeah, about the height of their popularity. They were, uh, I mean, they were huge, huge. I mean, there's so many songs. But but I also distinctly recall uh, my neighbor, when I was in Folsom in high school, my neighbor, we had two, well, on one side we had, uh, uh, what was his name? Keith. That's right. Keith and his wife. And they were kind of a weird couple, but they had this dog named Karen. Their dog, their dog's name was Karen. Um, and Keith was kind of a douchebag, and he had um, chickens that he kept in the backyard that made my dad nuts because Keith would go out and and, and go round up the eggs um, in the nude sometimes, and that would just set my dad up. My dad was easily triggered, I think. But but on the other side of us was this guy. Uh, his name was Rick Chopek, but my my folks called him the Klopex because, I don't know, 
kind of like uh, the Klopex and the Burbs, the movie The Burbs. The Klopex were like the weird neighbors across the street that everybody was spying on, like Tom Hanks and um, uh, Bruce Dern and all those guys were keeping an eye on the Klopex who had, you know, had weird shit going on in their cellar, you know. And, uh, but his real name was Rick Shopek, and he was just kind of this funky dude. He looked like, he looked like kind of a, um, a stunt double for like the dude in ABBA, you know, he looked like he was in ABBA, like he was the fifth member of ABBA, kind of long hair, uh, but on the mullet side, and then a little bit of a beard, you know, kind of a borderline mullet, like a bullet, and, uh, but he'd, uh, he'd be hanging out. He'd always be in these weird, like, Daisy Duke uh, jean short, you know, these homemade jeans, these jean shorts, you know, these cutoffs. We used to call them cutoffs back in the day. Kids don't know what cutoffs are these days, but um, awful. It was all bad. Anybody had cutoffs is all bad. And uh, But he was an, he had a, uh, an AC business. And, um, you know, he'd done, he must have done quite well for himself. But he had, like, it was a weird arrangement over there. Like, his wife was like a male... I, I get this. I, I got this weird vibe that his wife was like a mail order bride of some sort because he seemed kind of out of touch with like most things. But he's a big ELO fan, and he and he'd be blasting that shit in his house. And so, you know, I'd see him in my driveway. I'd be in my driveway just shooting baskets or some bullshit, and he'd be out there, and you know, he'd, we'd BS. But he, I remember him. Uh, he hired me as an AC guy one day. We I just did it one day because uh, it just wasn't. I don't know. It was over the summer. I was kind of stuck in the house, didn't have anything going on. He's like, yeah, you want to learn AC? I'm like, yeah, whatever, for sure, fine. But he started talking about ELO. He's just this huge ELO guy and how that talked about all their big or- orchestral arrangements and stuff like that. And so it kind of revived this whole, you know, I had like a brief ELO hiatus from, you know, when I was six till I was about 17. And then kind of got reacquainted through uh, the, you know, this guy Rick Shopek or the Klopex. Excuse me. And, um, but that was, uh, you know, that was a huge band, ELO. And so I've just been rocking, rocking out to them most of the week, the last couple of weeks, actually. And, uh, and then I got to thinking, like, how many guys are named? Because the, because Jeff Lynn was the main guy. Jeff Lynn is like, he was basically the brains of the, I, uh, to my understanding, he was the brains of the operation. Between the two guys, you know, and all the, you know, they had, huge, huge, uh, you know, they did like, um, they used a lot of session musicians, obviously on top of the orchestral backing, but Jeff Lynn was kind of the producer and the, the, the songwriter and the, uh, I guess the main dude pretty much. And then he went on after ELO, well, ELO, they broke up probably in the eighties and, uh, I remember seeing stuff like uh, late 80s or early 90s, like ELO2 coming to you. ELO coming your way. ELO2 coming your way. Well, what is ELO2? Well, ELO2 was just Bev Bevan. Nobody wants to see just Bev Bevan. You know, Bev Bevan. It's like, it's like Sven Svensson. It's like, like, like the guy that, the guy, like our waiter at the, at the, uh, on the cruise ship that my buddy Mike kept calling Sven, although his name wasn't really Sven, but... It'd be a Sven Svensson type, but this guy Bev Bevan was, uh, he tried to revive the whole ELO thing, but with just him. And nobody wanted to see that. Jeff Lynn was already off. He'd, he'd gone on to like produce a bunch of, uh, well, he became part of the Traveling Wilburys, as a matter of fact, back in the 80s, uh, with Bob Dylan, George Harrison, Roy Orbison, and oh, and Tom Petty. And they had a couple albums. The first one was good. But it was kind of a funky novelty band. But it was a good album. Well, it's all right. Riding around in the breeze. Well, it's all right. If you live a life, you please. But, um, and then he went on to produce uh, a f- the last few um, Tom Petty albums. Which mm, sounded less like Tom Petty and more like Jeff Lynne. But at least it didn't sound like ELO. I don't know. But they were good, you know. Um, so that's, uh, but that that's that's my ELO story. But um, but Jeff Lynn, yeah, was kind of like the the main dude. And I was thinking, I was driving home the other night, and I was thinking, how many dudes? How common is how common? Are there any other famous Lins? 
like L-Y-N-N. Although Jeff Lynn spells his last name with an E. But um, I got to thinking there's, that's a, it's just kind of a strange name. Matter of fact, there aren't, there aren't too many famous female Lynns, like first name Lynn. Like I looked up famous Lynns and it was all female except for Lynn Swan. Um, the great Pittsburgh Steeler receiver who, uh, he's got, uh, he's got four rings, I believe. Yeah. And, uh, they don't talk about him much anymore. I don't know why, but, but other than that, it's all just, um, yeah, just, well, famous Lynn, they're all pretty much, well, the whole list of females like Lynn Redgrave, but that's it. That's it. I didn't recognize any of the other Lynns. Like, it's just a weird name. Lynn. You know? Like, Lynn Men... Isn't that... Isn't that... Uh, isn't that the guy's name who did uh, the Hamilton... The Hamilton uh, musical? Uh, something Lynn Manuel Miranda or something? But it's L-I-N. So it's not the same. Then there's Fred Lynn the great Boston Red Sox and California Angel, the, I think the only, to my knowledge, is still the only guy to hit a grand slam in the All-Star game. Did that as an angel. I think he was Rookie of the Year as well. Um, another overlooked player, though, you don't talk about. Fred Lynn. Matter of fact, Freddie Lynn. Good old Freddie Lynn. He was, uh, let's see. Let's see what, uh, let's see what old Fred Lynn did with his career. I remember he got hit in the head. Um, after that, and he wasn't, he wasn't quite the same as a batter. Um, let's see, 75, 75, I believe he was rookie of the year. What did he do? He had, do, 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 75, 75, um, Come on, man. Come on, man. Um, where's the where's the home run count? Doesn't even show what? what kind of website doesn't show your home run stats? Bunch of horseshit, man. Um, Freddie Lynn, born in '52. Well, he's not that. He's same age as my dad. Yeah, he was the first player to win. Oh, that's right. Okay, the first player to win baseball's Rookie of the Year and MVP. That's right. And he was a fucking badass. Career batting average, 283, 306 home runs, 1,111 RBIs. Pretty good, man. Um, let's see. Let's see. Let's get some stats, though, on this guy. What the f- Ugh. Um, and he did play with for, played for the Tigers too. That's crazy. Um, let's go MLB.com. Who do you gotta, who do you gotta fucking know in this town to get some Fred Lynn stats? Jesus Cristo. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. So it's rookie year, it's full rookie year. 21 home runs, 105 RBIs, 175 hits, 103 runs. Not too shabby. Next year, 76, not as many. 10 home runs, 159 hits. Only played 132 games. I think he had he had some injury issues here and there. But 79 busted out with 39 dingers. 122 RBIs. Not too shabby, man. Batted three thirty-three. Good for him, man. So let's see. He went to the Angels in eighty-one, where it looks like he only had about two hundred and fifty at bats. Then went on to go. What did he do? Is that right? Oh no, that's not right. Well, anyway. Fred Lynn, he's the only other Lynn I know that's a male, other than Jeff Lynn. Forget about old Fred Lynn, good for him. But um, speaking of which, in the sports world, 
It was a sad day on April 6th of this month. Uh, Mark Conover passed away, which I know that doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people, but I'll tell you this. In 1988, he was a very, uh, very um, motivating figure in my world because that was my junior year in high school. Was it junior? Yeah. And so I was 18, 17, and the Olympic trials were held in um, New Jersey for the marathon. And this guy, Mark Conover from uh, Humboldt State alumni, class of, I want to say, 81, 80 or 81, he, uh, he ran away from Ed I. Stone the uh, BYU All-American and um, two-time Olympian ran away from him in the last mile to win the Olympic trials. And nobody, nobody, I mean, and I mean nobody, not even Conover saw this happening. And um, I remember watching, I just, I remember watching it and this was, I think, just prior to uh, the Humboldt State coach at the time, who's this guy, Dave Wells, who uh, ended up? He started. I think he started calling me and 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 started recruiting pretty heavily after Conover won that that race. And what was really interesting was the way it all kind of unfolded. Uh, that year, he ran. Um, see, Conover was like a, a. He was definitely a distance guy, uh, but he won the ten thousand meters in the division two. NCAA championships in 1980. And then um, earlier that year, I think he won the NCAA cross-country championships. But he was definitely a distance guy. and um, But he was, really, he was a really good high school runner as well. He was like a low 9, 908, 910, two-miler in high school from Orinda in the East Bay. And then... Um, but regardless, he was a he was a he was a he was a very talented, very talented runner, especially for uh, Division Two. I mean, this guy was running low twenty nine in the ten thousand in college. That's, I mean, he was a he may have even competed when the, the I think they they I believe they allow the winners or at least the top two. In the NCAA cross country championships, to uh, the winners or the runner up or to run in the uh, Division One, I. I don't, and he may, I don't know, but that's a big deal. But it's a big distinction too. Um, the reason I bring that up is because he was so unheralded, like he was so under the radar. Like he was a guy, he was very under the radar. Uh, matter of fact, he, um, he was representing Reebok in the Olympic trials, but what he was, I think what he was actually really representing were the Reebok Aggies, which are more of a local club. Like, um, they're, I think they're based out of Davis of all places. Uh, the UC Davis Aggies, uh, but, but they're not, it's just a, it's a loose affiliation. And, um, but was, uh, but the Aggies are more like a, like, I remember reading a, a, I think it was a Runner's World article on him after it came out. And uh, there was a very distinct, like the big, like the picture on the, on the, at the beginning of that article was him sitting in like a hot tub eating, uh, one of those, uh, what do you call them? Those, those, uh, pink snowballs from hostess and a beer he had a beer in one hand and a pink snowball in the other like they kind of portrayed him as kind of this uh kind of a running club geek kind of a any in, in in a sense he was like the Reebok Aggies were this club that uh one of their big things was the uh, centipede um that they would run in the Beta Breakers in the 15-kilometer race in San Francisco. And the Aggies always had a big centipede, like, which was just this giant... Uh, they're all connected, and it's kind of more of a... Like a party environment. Like a real loosey-goosey party environment. But these guys were also very good runners. Like, very, like uh, evidently. 
And so that was what he was kind of associated with was kind of like kind of a running bum. I think he was portrayed or, 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 you know, characterized as a running bum that just, and there's a lot of those, there's a lot of those clubs and there's a lot of those guys that are just running bums, but they come from programs and some of those programs are really good, like Humboldt State's program. And he went on to become a coach at Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, a really good coach. And, uh, but, uh, but he was, yeah, he was kind of like this maverick, kind of irreverent, kind of, uh, I think they're playing up an angle when, when he won because he beat these elite runners. He just, he ran away from these elite runners. I mean, second was, he, 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 he ran away from Ed Eyestone in the last mile. Ed Eyestone, he, he's the coach of the BYU program now. And, uh, he's also, and Ed Eyestone, like I said, he was a two-time Olympian. Uh, he's also a 27-41, 10,000-meter runner. I mean, that that is very, very elite. Very elite status. And uh, so if you can kind of leave a guy like that in the dust after 25 miles, then you got you got wheels, man. But he also beat a third place. He beat Pete Fitzinger. Fitzinger was a guy that won the 84 trials. Fourth place was this guy, Paul Gompers, who was another this kind of prodigy, like a 24-year-old, like phenom who ran 200 miles a week. And, uh, and he just ran away from these guys. Like, no, like I remember. And then, so what I did is I watched, uh, on YouTube, they have the whole, the whole race, um, from back when they aired it live. And, uh, when I had watched it the first time, but I watched the, the YouTube video and just watched bits and pieces of it. And, uh, about over halfway, when it really, uh, it, there was like a breakaway group of Conover and uh, Ed Eyestone, Steve Spence, who was a really good, um, he was pretty much a world-class runner as well. And then Gompers, and then Gompers started to fade, and Spence faded, and then Fitzinger passed both those guys to grab third. But over at even through halfway, like Marty Lacoury, who was who was um, doing the commentating, who was himself was an elite runner. He was the, he was one of the only uh, high schoolers to break four in the mile. He's like the second high schooler to ever break four in the mile. But he became a uh, a commentator, um, and he'd seen he'd he'd seen and, and and commented on it all. I mean, he'd been around everywhere and. Um, even he didn't know Conover's name. Even halfway through the race, he drew a blank on his name. But uh, but Conover ran like uh, that was his second marathon. His first one was at Cal was the California Marathon earlier that year, uh, or the end of would have been the end of '87. Uh, in um, the one that starts in Folsom, of all places, they start the California Marathon in Folsom, and it ends uh, downtown downtown Sacramento <clears throat> and uh, but th- those conditions were just oh, I remember that year it was horrible the winner was a guy named Peter Mayer who was a, a, a Canadian he was like a 6'4 six, 6'5 six, Canadian who just was this he just looked like a he looked like a jackhammer the guy was built like a jackhammer and that, was, that was a great story too this guy had been, he was a smoker forever smoked for like years and years and then just decided one day he was going to get in shape and then he became like this phenomenal marathoner matter of fact he led the uh, he led the world championships in Rome earlier that year the 87 world championships he faded uh, but just to lead that group in the world championships in Rome is something, but he, uh, he ended up winning the California marathon in a, it was just a torrential, just a monsoon. Um, and he won, he ran like two sixteen to win. And then Conover ran like two eighteen. but he got under the qualifier of, I think at the time it was like two twenty one to qualify for the Olympic trials. <clears throat> so when he got to New Jersey, I mean, even the even the there was a bit of a wind. It was kind of a, it wasn't a very fast course. Kind of a challenging course. It begins and ends on grass. Kind of an odd, kind of an odd setup. But uh, 
but he had the where with he had the training he had everything like his like his, his coach was Jim Hunt for uh, from Humboldt State and Jim Hunt had the saying the hay's in the barn the hay is in the barn so and what that obviously means is all the training's done now you just got to go out and execute right everything's done you can't all the harvest is done that's go that's time to go reap the benefits and that's what he uh, in essence did he he won the Olympic trials gained himself a spot on the team that of course, unfortunately, like pretty much every year, the Olympic marathon is running the middle of summer in a northern hemisphere country, and it's so damn hot. Most of the runners succumb to, you know, different heat problems, heat exhaustion, heat stroke, blisters, and uh, he ended up having to drop out, I think, because of blisters. But, um, and then he ended up, uh, I think he was 10th in the 92 Olympic trials. But R.I.P. Mark Conover, legend, Humboldt State legend. Couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. April 6th. But, but um, yeah, it, it's, uh, anyway, I don't, I don't know what, uh, what, what brought me to that. I think, um, oh, I just, well, I think just, just talking sports in general, talking about Lynn Swan and Fred Lynn and then Jeff Lynn. And then Jeff Lynn, to me, looks like, uh, getting back to Jeff Lynn, he kind of, Jeff Lynn kind of looks like, uh, well, I went on this, okay, I went on this Africa, uh, this kind of weird Africa <laughs> kick, okay? So bear with me, okay? And I don't know, I don't know what led me to this, uh, but I think I accidentally kind of came upon a, um, I came upon an, uh, a video of a guy, uh, a German guy, that um, decided he was going to bike from Cairo, or no, Cape Town, South Africa, to Cairo, Egypt. Um, I think maybe, I it, it may have had something to do with my whole... Um, my whole moon, my my whole moon night thing, um, and the fact that it, it it's kind of all taken place, uh, the the crux of it is taking place in Egypt, and um, particularly the end. The end is kind of this weird. Uh, the end of the episode four. I was trying to decipher last uh, last episode. Uh, talking about LSD and now a lot of this seems there seem to be theories about the fact that this is all in Mark Spector's mind. Mark escapes um, what's his name Arthur Harrow's office at the very end and takes off running along the way. He sees a sarcophagus with someone yelling and screaming inside. He opens it to find himself, well, or his alter ego Stephen Grant. Right. So the two embrace, confirm their confusion, and head out. They peek in briefly at a third sarf- sarcophagus. Now, keep in mind, this is all Egyptian terminology, uh, which they don't open. But from our perspective, we can only assume um, it's his third personality. Jake, uh, Jake, uh, what's his name? Jake uh, Long, Longley? Jake, uh, is it, what is his name? Jake something? Jake, uh, ah, whatever his name is. And uh, Jake Longley. I think it's Longley, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but they end up running it. But then the two of them, Stephen Grant and Mark Spector, two the two same guys, two different personalities, uh, end up running into a hippo-shaped deity. That's where I was. That's where it helps to have a little. I don't know. That's where you kind of take comfort in the knowledge that maybe there's a little LSD or some kind of mind-altering situation happening here but then this hippo-shaped deity says hi they scream and the episode ends but as it turns out uh, according to uh, marvel.com that is to wear it to wear it t-a-w-e-r-e-t to wear it to weary the goddess of fertility and childbirth my son kind of stumbled onto this news too like he said well that's the god of rebirth that's god of rebirth uh, uh, a fertility or, or rebirth, which it was, the goddess of fertility and childbirth, Tawaret, who was possibly 
another member of the Ennead, which is this council of these Egyptian gods that are kind of holding court uh, as, what's his name? Arthur Harrow is trying to summon Amit. Okay, so all this Egyptian terminology is kind of, is probably what kind of led me to the whole, to the whole, um, I don't know, the whole African thing. And, um, but it's, it's and, and, and then as I, as I start kind of going down these YouTube rabbit holes, um, it seemed like there was a, it was like a common occurrence. People are driving from Cape Town to some European country or vice versa, you know, or, or biking or there's, uh, I don't know, the fascinating, the fascinating part of such situations, of course. Well, when I was watching this guy, I believe his name is Anselm, Anselm. And I, I could have sworn, I would have, I would have, I would have bet my entire paycheck that this guy had some kind of support crew, but no, no, he didn't. Uh, it's a great, uh, it's a great video. I, I, I sent a link over to my buddy, Mike, but if you want to check it out, just type in from, uh, Cape Town, from Cape to Cairo by bike and, uh, it'll pull right up. It's fascinating because he, he did it unsupported by himself on a bike from the bottom of Africa to the top of Africa. And I even did a, a thing where like I, I decided to check out like, what are the, uh, what are the, uh, What's the distance? Like, if you're going to drive, and there is a road um, from, Cape to, from Cape to Cairo, there is an actual highway system. And then uh, in the 80s, the, uh, in the 80s, the, uh, they, they, they kind of, well, they did a modification, but because um, it used to be like about a nine, it said 90. 9,800 kilometers, close to 10, almost 10,000 kilometers. And, uh, and now after they, after they did a little modification to this highway system, it's a little over 10,000 kilometers, which is about a little over 6,200 miles. So that's twice the length of going from coast to coast in the U S and this, and homeboy did it on, on his bike. And I don't believe he even took the Trans-African Highway or the network. Um, it kind of showed a... There's a couple different routes you can take. And the way he took kind of divided up the middle and then snaked west for a little and then wound up doing like a little mm, wide swing to the east and then up into Cairo. But... But in the meantime, I mean, he's going through some gnarly, gnarly... Str- I mean, we're talking about... There's like, you know, you, you really got to plan this shit out. I mean, there's, there's, you know, tribal wars, civil wars, you know, conflicts, tribal conflicts. Um, you know, there's certain government situations that you just don't want to deal with. You don't want to... You don't want to hang out too long in, like, Somalia, you know, in Mogadishu or Djibouti, or even parts of Kenya. I mean, it's not, uh, it's not, uh, it's not a, it's a whole other ball game. And what I found was, so, um, so, this is going to be a weird, this will be a weird uh, explanation, but I, um, so I'm fascinated, of course, by, just these places in Africa for one, but, but the peop the, the fact that people exist out there, that, 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 that there are these remote places. One in particular that really blows my mind is, um, Timbuktu. Cause I really, I mean, there really is a Timbuktu. And, um, but what's even more interesting is that if you go on to just type in Timbuktu, T-I-M-B-U-K-T-U, Timbuktu, and just click on, show me images of Timbuktu. And I'm telling you, this place is the most desolate. I mean, West Africa is very similar to West, Te- West Texas. Matter of fact, if you were dropped in the middle of either place, you probably wouldn't be able to differentiate the two for several miles until you 
ran into other, uh, until you ran into other, you know, humans. And then you go, okay, well, I think I'm in Texas or I think I'm in Africa. But Timbuktu is like, okay, this is a place in, it's in the country of Mali, which is uh, almost dead center of Africa. Little west, a little west of the center. And it is, uh, it's the middle of, it's the middle of fucking nowhere. But what's really interesting is it's almost kind of a midway point between Egypt and where some scientists say that the lost city of Atlantis would be in the Atlantic Ocean. Why is that important? Because, because several centuries ago, it was a uh, basically the mm, gateway to the salt trade. So if you were going to trade salt, and they still do, they still do, they load up these these camels with these gigantic salt tablets, like huge. They look like big giant tombstones uh, of salt, and they put them on these camels' back, and then they they just hike through the desert. It's still it's not as it's not as frequented as it used to be. I mean, it's the salt. I mean, people, I mean, it's salt, man. I mean, you know, we've kind of advanced to, uh, to a point where, mm, I mean, you can just go to the store. But in Timbuktu, there's no, sto- there's no Starbucks at Timbuktu. I guarantee you there's no Starbucks in Timbuktu. And, uh, Matter of fact, it looks, click on images, type in Timbuktu in your Google, and then click on images, and you'll see what I'm talking about. This place looks like it rose up out of the desert, like it was some kind of, like, if Superman was, uh, you know, if, if he came from Africa, this would be his fortress of solitude. It's that remote, it's that it's straight, it just looks straight, just like it rose from the desert. And so I was reading up on, because I knew this guy, Tom Robbins, who, oddly enough, kind of looks like Jeff Lynn. Uh, but he's also, uh, I consider him, well, he's one of, my, one of my favorite authors, but he's out there. Like, he's a tripper, he's, a, he's an acid head, he's an LSD guy. Um, he went out there to do research for... Uh, um, for his book, Half Asleep in Frog Pajamas. And uh, so I was just fascinated um, when, or what what you would do out there to kind of occupy, I mean, well, okay, so according to the book, it, uh, it, it, it centered on um some of the some of the subject matter in that book I remember and I read it a long time back in the back in the 90s I read that but it had to do with this tribe that lived out there in, in uh, on the edges of Timbuktu <laughs> sounds so funny to say and uh they're called the Dogon the Dogon tribe them and the Bozo just like it sounds B O Z O the Dogons and the Bozo and the fascinating part about this, and this is this town arose. And I'm telling you, they arose, it arose in the 11th century. Okay, so it's been around since the 11th, probably earlier. But any the most the most modern recordings that anybody that I can think of that are aware of is uh, from the 11th century. And so, two of the uh, indigenous tribes out there, the Dogans and the the Bozos were able to uh, to communicate to Western philo- or Western astronomers rather, uh, because it wasn't until eight, like in eighteen sixty two, I want to say after uh, about just after mid mid nineteenth century. So eighteen, I think it was about eighteen sixty sixty two. The European astronomers went to uh, Timbuktu to chart out and confirm. Um, the existence of Sirius B, which was the sister planet to Sirius A, the uh, the uh, is it um, 
what are they called? The, is it the Dog Star? Series A. Series A, I think, I think you, you might be able to see Series A f- with the naked eye, but Series B, you cannot. But the Dogen tribe, through some, through some kind of wizardry, so some kind of ancient, weird, uh, hallucinogenically tribal inducement, were able to plot out the coordinates for Sirius B that you cannot see with the negative eye, that they had then in turn enlightened the 19th century European astronomers that came down to visit them that, they, that existed. And then when they got their equipment out, they confirmed that that was in fact the case. And so this was the subject, part of the subject matter of the book, Half Asleep in Frog Pajamas. So this weird outpost, this place Timbuktu, um, which was the, 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 the setting and the scene for the, these two tribes that somehow were able to figure out the coordinates for this astronomical anomaly that nobody could see except them until astronomers got their modern equipment and found it. How did they figure it out? Well, that's why I think that it's interesting that because there's, you know, there's all, there's, you know, there's obviously this loose connection between um, kind of um, the gods and constellations and the pharaohs and the Egyptians, and then that culture and their connection to Atlantis in the middle of the Atlantic, and then the fact that Timbuktu is virtually geographically dead center between the two places, but. But as, as I was uh, reading this, this thing, um, there was a little article uh, in the Seattle Times about when Tom Robbins went out there, said it seems that um, the Dogen and the, Bo- and the Bozo, two remote tribes in the landlocked West African nation of Mali, share a belief system based on their long-held knowledge that Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, has a smaller twin, Sirius B which is invisible to the naked eye, but orbits its celestial companion. European astronomers with telescopes didn't confirm the existence of Sirius B until 1862. See, there you go. But the Dogen and and Bozo, whose ancestral roots are in uh, Libya and Egypt, aha, ba-boom, respectively have known it for eons. So so he said... uh, so uh, Robbins, he goes, uh, the Geiger counter in my mind just began to ping, recalls Robbins, of that faithful, fateful magazine night. I knew I was onto something and it just had to be examined. So to make matters really uncomfortable, that examination had to take place in Timbuktu. Yes, there really is a Timbuktu, though the name has, long been, has been so long synonymous with the geographically unimaginable that most folks attach it to legend rather than the sun-blasted back of beyond in central Mali, and it fucking is. But while Europe was mired in the dark and Middle Ages, Timbuktu's locations at the crossroads of of, uh, Sahara caravan trade made it one of the world's intellectual capitals. So bing, bang, bong, there you go. See what I'm saying? All these scholars would just trek out there. They would do these pilgrimages out there. Um, An oasis of erudition with a great library and university. So it was, it was this intellectual capital. Unfucking believable huh? So he goes, I wanted to go all my life because I'm a romantic, explained Robbins in a recent chat at his writing studio in LeConnor. And what could be more exotic than Timbuktu? So this book that he was writing gave him the impetus, plus he could write it off on his taxes. <laughs> so his companion, Alexa, of seven and a half months, who became his wife, the last March of that year were warned repeatedly by the State Department not to go. Ten tourists were killed there in December 1990, he explained, a grim smile lighting his face. And we were there just two months later. <laughs> Which may be why they were the only guests in Timbuktu's sole Western-style hotel. For four days, we were the economy of the entire city. And... Why, or why they were besieged by hordes of would-be guys might 
intuition took my intuition took over. I chose. He says I chose Pascal because he looked exactly like Magic Johnson, though not as tall, of course. And why? On their last night in town, a sword a sword carrying Turig tribesman shrieked all night outside their door. He took our mild expression of interest in a camel ride to his desert encampment as a binding contract. So, um, so yeah, they're at the one. At the one Western style hotel in the whole town, there's 54. The current population in Timbuktu is um, like 54,000. So you know that it's not an it's not a Holiday Inn Express. That's for damn sure. There's no. If you look at the pictures on Google, I implore you, I implore you to look up Timbuktu on Google. There's no Starbucks there. And if it, if there was one there, it would be probably nobody would know what to do with it. It would be like a, it would be like uh, an alien mothership just dropping down out of nowhere, bizarre shit. So, but uh, but I, I just found that I just found that fascinating. I found it fucking fascinating. I mean, so, but uh, but yeah, like I said, there seemed to be a common occurrence. People are they were driving to, from Cape Town to some European country or Cairo um, and one of the things that this kid I, this German kid who by the way I want to say where was he was it Malawi somewhere up near the Sudan a little over halfway he, he contracted malaria and typhoid fever and water was scarce, and the pumps that he was getting this stuff out of was uh, pretty circumspect, pretty questionable sources. Like I say, it's like that uh, shake machine that my lady was getting a, a shake at during her fast. Like, you just don't want to... F- don't tempt fate, man. Don't tempt it. But, um, so he, yeah, so he... This guy was determined, determined to make that trip. So he got typhoid fever and malaria, hung out at the hospital for a few days, probably, you know, probably ridden with fever, um, probably dehydrated. But after a couple of days of being dormant and, 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 um, and, uh, and stuck, you know, just literally stuck, um, in some, it was like a, some kind of, it was, if it was a hospital, it wasn't much of a hospital. Uh, he got out of there. He just like, fuck it. I'm gone. I got to keep going. And he did. Unbelievable. Unfucking believable. Um, you know, probably suffering. He, he didn't look, it didn't look good, but I mean, just unimaginable circumstances, you know, um, driving through, I mean, this is Africa, this is fucking Africa, you know, when they say Africa hot, like, that's what they mean, Africa fucking hot, and there's shit everywhere, there's fucking, this guy's riding by, uh, ostriches and hippos and hippos, like, hippos are not, they're not fun, they don't like to play, but, um, but one, one particular spot that he stopped off at prior to his, uh, bought with malaria which I found interesting was again in the middle of fucking nowhere there's like these mini little pyramids that could have been there I mean were probably there probably there for centuries centuries and he'd stopped off to kind of gather his resources and stuff but it was just fascinating because um in such situations the you know of of in the in the court you know on this course that he was uh, charting there were the ruins of these this infrastructure that, that he would come across and uh, I would guarantee you had been there I mean centuries centuries hundreds you know I mean if 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 Timbuktu was there since the 11th century these pyramids had to have been I mean when so the actual pyramids in Cairo were built in 20 about 2400 BC so 
dozens and dozens of centuries ago. But um, it was like it was like when I was in London, it was like common to see a plaque on a residential wall in the city that, that said something to the effect of like, you know, William Shakespeare wrote Hamlet here or whatever. But in Africa, you, you evidently stumble across old pyramids in the West and central countries that have dated, I mean, literally to probably 11th century, if not older. Fucking insane. Of course, stateside, our, contribu- our contribution to that is... Uh, <laughs> well, on the other side of the 80, there's this dude named Jerry Lee who built... Uh, right next to the highway, he built this uh, castle of his in the, uh, in the, in the, in the late 70s, um, which you can see right from the highway. It's fascinating in Roseville. Um, it, looks just like a, it looks just like a castle. That's our, contribu- our contribution to, um, you know, early modern architecture is... Uh, this dude that ran a bunch of hair salons, his, his attempt at, uh, <laughs> or uh, his facsimile thereof, of a, uh, of an actual castle. It's bizarre. I, every time I drive by it, I, I'm just fascinated by it, but, but, uh, but yeah, that was, uh, it was quite interesting. It was very interesting. Um, Just seeing just the populations that he would encounter and going through, it was just, a, it's, it's, it's otherworldly. Just otherworldly. And uh, so that, that's what kind of, uh, I don't know, I just got on an Africa tangent. What do you want me to do? What do you want out of me? You know? It's Africa, man. It's Africa. And uh, it's... It's a, it's a big, big, dark, dark place. And the further west you go, the more obsolete it gets. And I don't know. I don't That's all I got. That's all I'm going to take. That's all I'm going to say. I got shit to do, man. So I got to go. That's the podcast for today. I'll talk at you later. Arrivederci, babies.